Well, welcome everyone uh, to the meeting place this morning. My name is Gary Glenn, I'm one of the elders here. And uh, I'm going to start off by saying, well, you can see the topic for this morning is uh, it's part of our foundations uh, uh, series, I guess, we've been doing. And the topic this morning is witnesses. And uh, I've got to be honest with you that I feel the least or one of the least um, qualified to, to speak about this. I, I really do feel that way. Um, but that being said, uh, I do in, in many ways, I'm just as qualified as anybody else. So the bottom line is, is that being a witness, being a witness is something that in the church, for many of us, has over the course of the last 30 or 40 years, or maybe even longer, uh, has been communicated in such a way that, that it, uh, it becomes somewhat of a burden. Am I striking a chord with anybody? How many have ever struggled with the whole idea of what it means to be a witness for Jesus? I have, I, all the time. And basically... When you take a look at the definition of it, the definition of being a witness is, or being witnesses, the definition witness is an open profession of one's religious faith through actions, deeds, or what we say. So it's in the unspoken things, it's in the spoken things. It says in Acts chapter 1 8, it says this, that, and we'll come back to this. It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. I don't think my clicker is working. That's okay. Oh, do you have to turn it on? Is, where, is it that one? Take a picture. Technical assistance. All right. Amazing. I am humbled in your presence. <laughs> uh, all right. uh, so, at the beginning of the book of Acts, we have this, this verse. You'll receive power. You'll be my witnesses. And the reality of it is, is that we are a people of promise. We're a people of promise. And the Bible talks about that. It talks all about, you know, how starting with even in Genesis and all the way through the promise of a great salvation that is coming our way. And um, there's a promise to us here that Jesus makes um, that we're enabled to reflect what's happened to us as a result of the cross and the subsequent filling of the Spirit. We don't have to be witnesses, we get to be witnesses. So it's all grounded in the cross. You don't have to say anything about Jesus. You don't have to do anything about Jesus. You don't have to do any of that. The reality of it is we get to do it. We have to change our way of thinking about what it means to be a witness. In other words, if you're 
a witness of something, you're identifying with something that you're very familiar with that's happened to you. And so we get to do this. It's like we talk about we don't have to pray. We get to pray. We don't have to worship like we did this morning. You don't have to do that. We get to do it. It all depends on the way that you look at it. It all depends on the way that you look at worship. It all depends on the way you look at prayer. It all depends on the way you look at reading the Word. You don't have to read the Bible at all. If you think you have to read the Bible, if you think you have to pray, if you think you have to worship, if you think you have to witness, you've got it backwards. I've got it backwards. And you know what? There's only one person... There's only one person in the universe that wants you to think that you have to worship, that you have to pray, that you have to read your Bible, that you have to witness. Who's that person? Satan. Because what he wants you to do is he wants you to come under guilt because you're not measuring up to the standard that supposedly God has for you. But the reality of it is, is that when we're in, we're in relationship with, with Jesus, we're promised that we would be witnesses. It's not something you have to strive to do. It's something, it's someone that you are. You don't have to worship. You get to because you're now a Worshipper. You don't have to pray. Doesn't get you any, you know, you could pray for hours and hours and hours. It's not going to get you anywhere unless it's born out of relationship and you're conversing and chatting it up with your father. You see, when we get that idea, it's a prompt, you know, when we get this, it should take whatever pressure is exerted on us to do any of these things from whatever source it may be coming, ultimately coming from Satan. You might as well call a spade a spade because that's really what it is. That's who would want to inflict on you a burden of guilt and shame. The subjective experience of salvation, that is, you've experienced it, You've tasted, you've touched, you've seen that God is good. I love the way that 1 John starts, the letter of 1 John. That which we have seen with our eyes, that which we have, right? So you have a subjective experience of salvation, and its impact on our lives is grounded in the objective fact of Christ's death on the cross, which has freed us from the bondage of our old way of life. So you're a freed person. You're freed from the old way. You're freed from the burden. You're freed from the you must do this, you can't do that. You're freed from that. See, I really struggled with this message this week. I said to Joe one Wednesday, I think it was one Tuesday or Wednesday, whatever day it was talking to you. And I said at the beginning, I'm the least qualified to speak about this. But in some sense, I'm... (laughs) in being the least qualified in one respect, the most qualified in another. And we're all the most qualified if we're in relationship. See, 
we used to be in this way of life that was that was characterized by a desire perhaps to do the right thing, Romans 7. The very thing I want to do, I cannot do. The very thing I don't want to do is the thing I do. And you might have small victories outside of Jesus in resisting temptation, but ultimately, because we're in our old man, we're in the old way, we succumb to temptation all the time. Ephesians chapter one, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. This is the way it was before Jesus. Okay, This is the, this is the way it was before Jesus. Got to talk about this before we even talk about being a witness. Where did we come from? And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. I've said it before, we've said it before, that you weren't drowning in your sin before Jesus saved you. You were dead in your sin and trespasses. I've heard that analogy, you know, like I was drowning in my sin and I reached out. You weren't drowning. You were dead. You're already dead. You're dead. Dead. Cease to be extinct. You know, the Monty Python routine. Following the course of this world. You had no choice. You were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, whether you realized it or not. Whether I realized it or not, I was subjected to the prince of the power of the air, Satan. I was subjected to that way of life. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. I was a son of disobedience. Among whom we once, once, all once lived in the passions of our flesh. We all lived in the passions of our flesh. In the passions of the old man. We all lived there. We were enslaved to it. We were in bondage to it. All you need do is walk around our city at any time. It doesn't have to be on a Friday night in the bar district. You can see people living in the passions of their flesh in your workplace. Because we're not talking, let's not relegate this and, and, and uh, marginalize it to talking about sexual sin. That's not what we're talking about. It includes it. It talks about egotistical ambition. It talks about the, the want for power. Jealousy, rage, anger, all those things. And we carried out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature... See, this is you're born into this. By nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. It's like we're all in this thing together. So we're born separated from God. We're born in the old nature. We're born doing what Ephesians chapter 2 talks about. Following the passions of our flesh, unable to do anything about it. Dead in your trespasses. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 to 14. 
Therefore, I love Paul. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles, unless you're of Jewish extract, you're a Gentile. I don't know that we have anybody here of Jewish extraction, but I'm a Gentile. You're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. You were at one time separated from Christ. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. So outside the camp, you couldn't come near. You couldn't, you know, you, you, you were a second class citizen. And I, here's the way he puts it. And without Christ, you have no hope and you're without God in the world. It's like, wow, that's pretty impacting when you think about it. That's life before Jesus. And thank God for verse 13. But now, but now in Christ Jesus, you, you and me, or as Jeremy likes to say, use guys, use, who were once far off, have been brought, what? Near. You've been brought near. You who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. His blood brings you near. He's on the cross. For He Himself is our peace. Jesus is your peace. Jesus, it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, He's your peace. He's your righteousness. He's your holiness, and He's your redemption. And so it's got nothing to do whatsoever with you. Isn't that a good thing? It's got nothing to do with me. It's got nothing to do with my striving for good things and good works and all the things. Folks, we need to, we need to really get a hold of that. It's got nothing whatsoever to do with my righteousness. I don't have any. If I had some, Jesus wouldn't have had to die on the cross. who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now he's talking there about the dividing wall of hostility and the breaking down of walls between the Jews and the Gentiles. But you know what? We can take it even further today. He's broken down the walls between us. We've said it before. How likely would it be for all of the different personalities and interests that are in this room, how likely would it be outside of Jesus for us to be together on a Sunday morning at 1120 on May the 6th? It's not likely. We come from all different backgrounds. We come from all different uh, walks of life. We come from different professions. Some from not professions. We're students. We're this, we're that. We're mothers, we're fathers. We come from all different... And what Jesus has done, He's broken down the walls, the dividing walls of hostility that would exist between even us. Because in your old way of life, maybe you hated those who had money. But now you don't. Maybe you who are rich had no regard for those who had nothing because you saw them in a certain light. And you could take those analogies far. So why this salvation? Why this salvation? Why would this God do what he did? 
Why would he choose to send the one most precious to him to this earth to be ridiculed, scorned, misunderstood, and eventually sacrificed on a cross while being totally innocent, fulfilling the righteous requirements that he himself laid down? Why would he do that? Why would he, in agreement with the Son and the Spirit, do that? Hopefully, we're going to be able to find that answer out. First of all, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are compelled by love in doing what they've done. You see, we're created by the Trinity. We're created by the Trinity. It says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. Our image. It's not a typo. After our likeness. And let them have dominion over the flesh of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You see, we were created... By this Trinity, eternal Trinity, coexisting together eternally in this wonderful relationship of love, and I might add, in authority. So it's not, this, this relationship is a beautiful picture of. The combination of beautiful, unconditional, sacrificial love between the Father, Son, and Spirit for all of eternity. And yet, there's this beautiful picture of the authority of the Father, this Father that loves, this Son that is totally subservient to the Father, obedient because of the great unconditional love of the Father, and the Spirit doing that which Jesus asked Him to do. What a wonderful thing. And so in this, folks, we're created out of that. We're created out of this, this, this beautiful picture of triune relationship that defies imagination that defies description, and we're created out of that. With the intention now to replicate it. With the intention to multiply it. With the intention to to spread it around. And so we're created out of this perfect love that had really no need, but yet did it. Not only that, it's an eternal thing because, you see, you and I, we were thought of before the foundation of the world. You were not just brought into the picture at conception. Your existence, as it says in Ephesians chapter 1, even as He chose us in Him... God chose us 
in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. See, there's a promise in that, even in that, that before the foundation of the world, He's chosen us in the promise of being holy and blameless. What an amazing thing. In love, you see, this is the motivation. In love, He predestined us. He predestined you. He predestined me for adoption as sons. My wife is adopted. She's very, very thankful that she was adopted. And when she was adopted, she received all of the rights that come with being a Steve's. As many as they are. And you know what was really neat? Is that I don't, we don't even know what her real name was because she was named. We don't know what her original surname was because she had one. But here's the neat thing. is She has taken on not just the name of her adoptive parents, but she's taken on the very likeness, the mannerisms, the characteristics, everything to do, not just the fact that she lives in their house or lived in their house, not just the fact that they drove her to and from their games and all that stuff, but she took on their mannerisms. She took on the things about them that made them Steve's. She became Steve's. You see, when we're adopted in Christ, we actually take on his characteristics. So we're adopted as sons through Jesus. All of you are sons. You see, because this is a lineage thing, like it or not. Let's not superimpose 21st century values on biblical values. Because if I have to be part of the bride of Christ, then ladies, you need to be a son. We've heard that one before, but it's true. It really is. And this is all according to the purpose of his will. I mean, what's the most easily memorized Bible verse in evangelical Protestant Christianity? For God so loved the world that he... Very good. God so loved the world. You see, it's out of love. And what is wonderful about this, what is wonderful about this, salvation through the Trinity, is that we're no longer orphans. You're not an orphan anymore. You're not an orphan. John chapter 14. I, I know all of you evangelists in here are saying, would you just get to the point? I just want to tell, I want to know how to tell people about Jesus. Well, this, I'm, I'm getting to the point. So if you're chomping at the bit, you know, it's like, okay, Adam's back there. Okay, when's he going to get to the cut to the chase here? But but the, the fact of the matter is, you've got to know how bad it was. You've got to know how good it is before you can get to anything. 
So here we are. We're no longer orphans. John 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So is Jesus saying it this way? If you love me, oh, you'll keep my commandments. Or is he saying, you know what? If you, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's a promise. It's not a guilt trip. It's a promise. You, you get to do it. It's like you're going to be able to do this. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, capital H, to be with you forever. The Spirit of God. Notice again, Father, Son, Spirit, all working together. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. For the natural man, the way you used to be, cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God because they're folly to him, neither can he understand them because they're what? They're only understood by the Spirit. And so, here we are, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you. He dwells with you. And, get this, I love this, will be in you. He's in you. Spirit of God, the helper, is in you. 18. I love the way he said it. He just said it. I will not leave you as orphans. It was said this morning, you know, like Zacchaeus in the tree, you know, it's like I wish I could have been there. But actually, it's better now. Because Zacchaeus, even though he saw Jesus, even though the disciples saw Jesus, now the promise is fulfilled that it's like Jesus is living in us. I don't just get to see him. He's living in me by his spirit. It's so cool. It actually trumps walking around with Jesus. Or can. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet... A little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you will also live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. It's not just the lyrics of a pop song. It's it's got its origins right here. Jesus, nothing's new under the sun. The bottom line is, is that you're in Christ. He is in you by His Spirit. See, we're brought into this relationship. We're no longer orphans. Barb is not an orphan when she's taken out of the hospital by Ruth Steves and and Lawrence Steves. She's a Steves. She's no longer an orphan. You're not orphans, folks. I'm not an orphan. You have all the rights that come with you as being a son of the living God. And so, secondly, we then are compelled by the same thing that compelled the Trinity. We're compelled by love. We're compelled by love. And I said I'd get back to it. The promise of the witness. You see, Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses. It's not, again, it's not, you know, looking at Christ saying, you will be my witness. 
You know, I've, heard, I've heard guys preach like that before. And they, they preach on stubble and hay and diamonds and gold, your rewards and all that stuff, and they, everybody comes out and they're browbeaten and they come out of the meeting. I've been in those meetings, folks. I've been there. And you come out, oh, I've got to do something for Jesus. What am I going to do? Where, I just, I'm going to grab hold of the nearest guy that I can, and I'm just going <laughs> to... And it's no more led by the Spirit. But Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses when the Spirit comes upon you, when His presence is in your life. When you become a Christian, His Spirit comes in you and like Peter, now think about it. Peter, he's got to be the, the, the biblical fail man. I mean, Peter. Peter was shamed by a girl at a campfire denying Jesus. He walked with Jesus right from the start. Set down your net and come with me. He walked with him. He was with Jesus. He saw everything Jesus did. But at the campfire, he couldn't assent to even being with Jesus after being with him all those years. I mean, here's the guy. Not just was he at the campfire Shamed by this girl, this son of thunder. But in the garden, exhibited a total lack of wisdom in cutting off uh, the ear of Malchus. And Jesus rebuked him and healed the guy. No, he who lives by the sword is going to die by the sword. Put your sword away. So here's this Peter... He's the guy that we read about in Acts who gets up there and he says, you know, we're not drunk like you might think. It's only the morning time. Here we are. We're basically all whacked out of it because the Holy Spirit has come and revolutionized us. And we're, I mean, if they thought they were drunk, then they were inebriated, immersed, totally gonzo for Jesus on the balcony, and he's preaching to thousands, and they're getting saved. And the church is added to by thousands over the next number of days and weeks. No fear. Actually, I'm sure, thinking back, he would have thought, oh my goodness, that campfire scene, oh my goodness, me cutting off that guy's ear, oh, if I just had the Spirit of God living in me. That's the difference, you see. The difference is he was filled with the Spirit. He was filled with the Spirit. See, the reality of it is, is that when we're filled with the Spirit, we're filled with the very same thing that compels the Trinity. Our hearts are then flooded by the love of God. And love is an external thing. You know, like DC Talk, you know, love's a verb, right? It's an external thing that, that has a life of its own. And Romans 5.3 characterizes it, says it the best. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings 
knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. So he's talking about adversity and, and the good that can come of it. Because, get this now, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So we have this Holy Spirit who has poured God's love. Our God's love is, is, is totally overflowing in your life. So the very same thing that compelled the Trinity in creation, the very same thing that compelled the Trinity in creating you and me before the foundation of the world is the very same compulsion that we have now. We have the compulsion to replicate that which has happened to us. That thing that we witness to. The new life that we have in Christ. That very same thing is the thing that we have compulsion to do ourselves. The very same eternal love. The very same creating love. Redeeming love. The very same sending love. Empowering love. Is in us by virtue of the Holy Spirit. God himself resides in us. How good is that? I mean, that, you just got to think about that for a while. Marinate on that. Like a tough piece of steak that I am, and you marinate in God's presence, and you marinate on his truth, and it softens you up big time. And it makes you palatable to those around you. Because without God's Spirit, I'm a Peter. I'm going to make people mad. It's hard enough not to do it now. Because you know what? We still have to contend with our flesh. First John 4.8 Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. See, God is the embodiment, the def like God isn't just equals love, God is love. God is that which we speak of. That that which has been poured out into your hearts by the Spirit is is God Himself. It's 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 what He is, it's who He is, it's it's His manifested presence in your life that compels us. It's like trying to figure out how long a piece of string is or how deep the universe is. You cannot even plummet steps. This love is the very manifestation of Him. It's otherworldly. It's supernatural. It is other. And what it does is it... I'm behind myself. It compels us and propels us forward. 2 Corinthians uh, 5 says this, verse 14, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, this, that one has died for all, that Jesus died for everyone. In the Amplified Version, I'm not a big Amplified Bible fan because, I mean, you ever try to memorize the Amplified Bible? It's like one verse take you a month. But it says this, For the love of Christ controls and urges and impels us. Because we are of the opinion and conviction that if one died for all, then all died. 
You see, Jesus is the second Adam that brings us all in. When you go in with Jesus, you're impacted more so than when Adam sinned and we all fell. They all died. Remember, you have a supernatural compulsion to share your story. Here we go. Nothing bolts at him. You do. You have a supernatural compulsion to share your story. That's because of God's love. So when, have you ever said, oh, I should have said something? You ever been there? Oh, I should have said, oh, I should have said something. Or you feel the urge to say something or the urge to do something and you don't follow through. And of course, that's when the enemy would come with the guilt. But that's a sign that there's a supernatural compulsion in your life. You got to line up with it. I got to line up with it. I got to, I got to follow it because it's a supernatural compulsion. See, you can't help it because it's screaming to get out of you. God's love is the powerful motivator. It's pointless to try and suppress the voice of the spirit in your life. He loves you and get this. He trusts you. I love this. He trusts you enough with his precious word, enough to use you. Do you ever think about God trusts you? God trusts me enough with what he's done in my life? Well, he's put his spirit in your life, so I guess he's pretty good with that. He's along with that. John Grove says this, You may get your words muddled and your theology wrong, You may get stuck when people ask questions, but don't worry. Jesus doesn't expect you to know it all. Just say what he has done and let his light shine through you. We get majoring on the minors sometimes. Don't get majoring on the minors. In other words, stick to your own story. Stick to the facts. No one can refute what God has done in your life. They can argue, it's, it's really not a good thing to get caught up in, in arguments with people about evolution and, and abortion and all that stuff. I mean, I'm not saying don't talk about them. I'm, not, I'm just saying, if you get caught up in that stuff and you miss the story that God has done in your life, the chapter he's written in your life, you miss that part, it's going to be a problem for you. So maybe it's a good time and a good idea to write your own story. Because if you have your own story, it might help you. And so I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but maybe you need to ask yourself and actually write these things down when you met Jesus, where you were. What was the central focus of my life before I was saved, before I was a Christian? What did my life focus on? Well, my life focused on trying to please my dad. Some total. My whole teenage existence was trying to impress my dad, my earthly dad. That was, my, that was me. That was my identity. What happened to you? What in a paragraph, point form, what happened to you? What were the circumstances, the immediate circumstances that led to that? Well, a year and a half before I became a Christian, I was trying to find those answers. I made a promise because I was so frustrated. I said, if I ever find out what the truth is, I'm going to follow it with my whole life. Little did I know 
that God was, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, right? Little did I know that God had put that question in my life. He prompted me to say that question. And then a year and a half later, I was working at a record store. Some of you know the story. Friend that I hadn't seen in years comes in. We decide we're going to go out for a beer after work. I'm sucking back the beer. And in the midst of a conversation after about beer five, I said, you know, I've been thinking a lot about God lately. And he says, really? I said, yeah. He said, well, I'm a Christian. I said, what's that? And he proceeded to tell me the story of Jesus with a grade-aid education. Told me what Jesus had done in his life. He didn't get it all complicated. He just told me what Jesus had done in his life. And here I was, after three years of university, thinking I knew everything. Really, my experience was a mile wide and each dim, and each an inch deep. But everything he said, whenever he said the name of Jesus, it, it completely, my heart was about to explode. Like, you're, like this is truth. Like, he, he would tell me something, and my head, my head wouldn't disagree with it. My heart would just, like, this is, this is real. This is true. And that was, that was what happened. I'd be, I said, what do I have to do? And he looked at me and said, I don't know. I've never done this before. Yeah, I guess you'd have to pray. I guess we could ask Jesus, like, you could, you could ask him, like, come and make me new. And I said, fair enough. I said, what do I have to do? Uh, you might want to sit and kneel down, and we're in a, a van on the side of the river by the Robbie Burns statue downtown at 3 o'clock in the morning, August 12, 1982. And I'm kneeling there, and I said, Jesus, I don't know what to tell you, but would you come into my life and change my life? I was so ripe, I was rotten on the tree. Folks, I had nothing before that. There are others like me. There are others like you out there. You see, you're part of God's puppet show. Oh, you mean we're puppets? Where's my individuality? Yeah, you're a puppet in a way. If you're being directed by the Spirit of God and you're being obedient to Him, you're going to go in the right places. I just look like a monkey there, didn't I? It's true. It's like God leads us into places. And here I was. So why I decided to become a Christian? You could answer that question. Where am I now? Where are you at now? Well, I can honestly tell you that I don't find my identity in what I used to. I find my identity in Jesus. And, I'm, and, and every day is a new day. Every day, like, you know what? There's more layers to the onion than I ever thought possible. I'm a pretty big onion. I had a lot of layers come off of me. And I've got a lot more to go. But I know who the onion peeler is. It's true. The most important thing Jesus has done in my life. What's the most important thing? I can honestly say the most important thing Jesus has done in my life is that I know, I know that I'm a son of God. Like, I know that. I know it in here. The most important thing, he's given me a sense of purpose. He's given me a sense of of unconditional love. He's given me a sense uh, that, that I know whose I am. I know who I am. Like, folks, it's got nothing to do with anything else for me. Thirdly, it's bigger than you think. This whole thing is bigger than you think. Because, you see, we are ambassadors, not you're just alone. 
You're ambassadors together. We're together on this thing. We're ambassadors. We're together on a mission together. This is not just a slogan that we say. We mean it. It's because I want to do this, not just with with myself. I want to do this with you guys. It's like, I never thought in a million years, like in June, uh, Sebastian and I are going to fly to Montreal and go to with this young church there, and we're going to spend a couple days with it. I never thought in a million years we'd be doing that. Did you? It's like it's, we're ambassadors for Jesus. We're ambassadors. 2 Corinthians 5.20. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ. So here's the message of the ambassador. We implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. You see, there's an invitation for reconciliation to God. It comes through us as ambassadors. We're commissioned. Oh yeah, and we are representatives of a different country. But in sake of time, we're commissioned and you're anointed and I'm anointed for a purpose. Luke 4, 18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. We're not just talking about people who don't have money here. Let's not make the mistake. Poverty of spirit is a huge deal. If you don't know Jesus, you're poor in spirit. We do preach, in a sense, prosperity. But we don't have such a narrow definition of it that has to do with Cadillacs and Flying around the world. Nothing to do with that. We teach a prosperity that's a whole prosperity in God. That God makes us prosperous in Him. That we know who we are. That we're ambassadors for Him. It trivializes the kingdom of God when we bring it down to money. It, like it, it makes me, you can tell it gets me. All right? I better stop. It trivializes the cross. It trivializes the resurrection. It trivializes the Trinity when we relegate the gospel message to that. It's it's the whole thing. It's all of life. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty, liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor so that we get to see results. And we are seeing results. We're seeing God change people's lives. At the very least, he's changing yours. He's changing the way you think about yourself. He's changing the way you're being able to see yourself as a son of God. It gives you, gives you motivation when you say, yeah, well, love, God's love is compelling me. And hopefully after this morning you say, you know what? I, like, it's, it, God's love's compelling me like this. I sense this in my own heart. Like, how can I go wrong? And I be obedient to his spirit. You see, and this is for you, it's for your family, it's for your city, it's for your region, it's for the nation, it's for all of the nations. And it's like we said a couple weeks ago, some of you, you know what? You're never going to go somewhere to plant a church. But you reach the nations here. I mean, you still need pillars in the building. You're compelled by the love of God. To, to reach those around you, your neighbors, your family, your friends, the people you don't know. They're hungering, and they're on, the, they're on the tree ripe to be picked. You just never know. 
It's like I said, I was so ripe. I was rotten on the tree. Like, I am so thankful that it happened. Like, and I mean, that's 30 years ago. And I don't have to get up in the morning to motivate myself. I just get in the Word and say, oh, God, like, help me. Isaiah 52.10, we'll end with this. It says this, The Lord has bared His holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. We're not talking about countries here. Both and. Countries, but yes, all peoples. Everybody. And all the ends of the earth. Here's the promise. We're talking about people of promise. All the ends of the earth shall what? Shall see the salvation of our God. It's done through us.